How are you doing today, Zan? I'm doing great. The weather's fantastic. The leaves are changing colors. Just a beautiful fall day to sit outside and uh, eat a muffin. Where'd you get your muffin from? I got it from a bake sale. Mm. I just ran into it and they said, want a muffin? And I'm like, you know, I actually do. See, I'm a fan of baked and wired in the neighborhood, but uh, No, but there's something to be said about being spontaneous. That's true. And you know, with spontaneity, there's a lot that can happen that you aren't predicting, uh, especially with the midterm elections mm, that are coming Great up. pivot. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> if only we had some way of, you know, predicting what might happen during this midterm election. I got my Senate map, but uh, I've never been right. Zan, guess what? 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 Tell me about it. I know just the right person. Oh, really? Is he in the geopolitics office? He is. His name is Alex Lundry, and he was our guest for this week's oh, episode. Oh, wow. Why don't we run a little intro? Well, Alex Lundry in 2012 was the director of data science on Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. And in mm. 2016, he was the chief analytics officer on Jeb Bush's presidential campaign in the primary. Now he's the co-founder of an analytics firm called Tunnel. Wow, he seems like a, an incredibly qualified person to help us out with uh, dissecting and predicting what might be happening this midterm. And you know what? Stay tuned. You're going to hear about his election map and predictions. And uh, this is actually a very special episode. Why don't you tell them why? It's a very special episode because it's going to be a two-parter. We got Alex Lundry coming back on after the midterms to unpack the predictions he made. Yeah, and we're going to hold his feet to the fire. So you better hear his Senate map so you know what's coming for him. So It's true. So if you're ready to fly in today's episode, <laughs> don't forget to uh, follow us on Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Give us a good five-star rating. Fly on the wall, call in a GU Politics <laughs> podcast, and uh, stay tuned. Yeah, without further ado, let's get straight into it. All right, today we are welcoming Alex Luntry to the podcast. Say hello. Hello. All right. <laughs> we'll get straight into it. Um, Ken? All right. You've had a long history in uh, the political campaign space. Mm -hmm. You've been on Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign as a director of data science, uh, Jeb Bush in 2016. Mm -hmm. So what were those experiences like? You can start with Romney. You can go into Bush. Yeah. You know, to me, the most fascinating thing about those experiences is the that the field I work in has, you know, been emerging over the last 20 years or so. It's a relatively brand new field in the world of campaigns and politics. And so over the years, I've been able to see how the role of data science has grown and how it's become more and more important to each campaign. So you go back to 2004 when I was just getting started and it was used as an experiment by the Bush campaign as in a very limited sense to 2008 when we were consultants to the McCain campaign and we were a little more involved. But then 2012 came and I worked for the Romney campaign. I was the first you know, full-time person on a campaign to focus on data science uh, for a president, Republican presidential candidate. Uh, but I didn't come on until the general election, um, had a relatively small staff, relatively small budget, was part of the polling team, which was a fantastic team. But um, you know, then to look back at that from 2016, when I was one of the first hires on the Jeb Bush campaign, I had a very large staff for the primary, very significant budget for the primary. It's just been very interesting to see how that role has grown and grown in importance over the years. And I'm curious if you can give us some insight into the kinds of data that's used in a political campaign. I know a lot of people think about you know big data and they're mm -hmm. kind of scared and they have a lot of privacy concerns. How much do y'all really know and what's important to y'all when you're working on a campaign and trying to figure out who you need to reach out to? 
Yeah, so the base file we begin with is the voter file, which is a publicly available data set um, to usually anyone who requests it. There are some restrictions by state. In some states, you have to be a resident of that state. Um, but in other states, it's completely open. You could go Google Ohio Secretary of State voter file right now, and you could download the entire statewide voter file in just a matter of seconds. Um, and that voter file has some really key information. It's got your name, your address, your birth date. Um, it's sometimes got party registration if you're a party registration state. We know what elections you voted in. We don't know how you voted, but we know that you did vote in an election. We will know how you voted. Was it absentee? Was it early? Was it in person? Um, we'll know frequently if you voted in a partisan primary and which primary it was. So there are already a lot of signals that we can just pick up from the voter file that can help us better understand who people are. Um, you know, even in Voting Rights Act states, they're required to collect race and ethnicity. So we'll have that information as well. Um, but that's the starting point of the data we have. We take that and we match that in with a consumer data file. So we go to these large companies you've never heard of, like Axiom, Experian, InfoUSA, and we match the voter file into data that they have on each of those individuals. Now that data, the data we receive, it's got information about demographics, so gender, income, education, and so on. Um, it's got lifestyle information, um, you know, interests that you have, the sort of house you live in, the sort of community you live in, type of car you drive, and those are collected from a bunch of different places. Now, um, you know, the data is informative, but it's not incredibly informative. It's not like deeply informative about like you bought this on this date at this time for this much. Um, instead, it'll be rolled up, aggregated, you know, to say this person has a technology interest. We don't know that they bought a computer, you know, at Best Buy on this date for this much, but we know that they have a technology interest. So like it is, you know, I, I think that there are certainly some very legitimate privacy concerns around <laughs> it, but for the most part, it's actually the data I work with is not all that revealing. But uh, at the risk of sounding a little Black Mirror-ish, like, uh, you know, it's in some company server, there's an Excel file, maybe my name, uh, my party affiliation, what where I voted, how motivated I am to vote, because, you know, if I did an absentee mm -hmm. and, you know, my interests. So, right. you know, someone could control F me and figure that out. Yeah, if you wanted to look up an individual, you could look them up. And in fact, you can look up your own information. Um, if you go to uh, Axiom's website, which is one of the consumer data providers I talked about, um, you can actually request your information. Um, it's A-C-X-I-O-M is the name of the company. And I think uh, if you go through that process, which I just recently went through actually in anticipation of doing the fellows, um, I have my own data. And when you look <laughs> it up, I, for me at least, it's it's oddly comforting in that like it's not that revealing. And also the, the kind of surprising thing is that it's frequently wrong. Uh, I know that it has my address wrong. It has my income wrong. It has my education wrong. It's got a lot of things wrong. Um, and so for any given individual, you're very likely to be wrong. But in the aggregate, it's more right than it is wrong. And so I don't really care about individuals. Like I don't care about specific individuals. I care about people in groups of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. And that data is good enough. But, you know, I encourage people to go look at their data because <laughs> I think I think you will be relieved in many ways. I know I'm going to be looking that up yeah. as soon as I leave this room. It's a process. You have to, like, prove that you are who you say you are. Gotcha. And they take some time. You know, they come back. Like, I think it took mine a couple weeks to do. And they've got to approve it and make sure it's all good. But this, there are some hoops you have to jump through. But it's it's really fascinating to look at it. So it's really all about the aggregate. 
Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's just that in the aggregate, you know, people are fairly predictable. And so we use that information to make predictions about how you're going to vote. Um, and if you think about it, you know, it's something that everybody does. This is, I think, really important insight for you guys and, and your listeners that we are all capable of doing this sort of targeting in that you're relying on your past experience with different types of people where you've collected data about who they are. And when you see a new person, you size them up and you say, okay, you know, you look at their hair, their clothes, maybe the book they're reading, maybe you saw the car they drive, you know, the neighborhood you're in, you know, and you can come to a pretty informed guess about who they voted for. Like if we just went out, you know, onto the quad and I challenged you guys to pick who voted for who, <laughs> you'd probably do a pretty decent job, right? And that's what we're doing, we're, we're, except we're using a formalized data set and we're using statistical algorithms and we're doing it at scale. So you, you've already mentioned that on the individual level, there can be some flaws in the data that's collected, but it's all about the trends. Right. I know in your field, though, when you start using uh, predictions, start making predictions or start trying to figure out where to invest your resources, you also use polling a lot. Right. Do you feel that polling is fundamentally broken? after the last couple of election cycles? I mean, it's getting harder and harder every year to do polling well. I don't think it's fundamentally broken, meaning it's beyond repair. Um, you need to be very careful and cautious about how you do it and to what end you're doing it, right? So, you know, I think it's, I, I think the um, widely accepted wisdom from, you know, 2016 when it felt to be especially broken was, you know, one, look, the national polls were actually pretty darn good and pretty, pretty on. It was the state level polls where they weren't very good. And those were a function of a couple different things. It's a function of what we call differential non-response, which is that uh, we were more likely to get Clinton voters to take surveys and Trump voters were less likely to take surveys. Um, it's a function of weighting. They, I think a lot of the public polls weren't weighting appropriately for education, which is a key differentiator. Um, private political pollsters have been waiting by education for a long time now. Um, but also, you know, you just need to be multi-mode now. You have to be doing them on both landline and cells, and you also have to be have a like a mobile component and a web component, and you need to be really smart about how you're reaching these people. So I don't think it's fundamentally broken, but it's certainly um, something that is not, you know, not anyone can do it, and um, you need a lot of resources at your disposal to do it well. So you've talked a bit about, you know, the history of data within politics, and I know you have experience being a data scientist on both the Romney campaign and the Jeb Bush campaign. I'm curious if you could walk us through how, uh, I mean, really the role you served on those campaigns and how data was utilized in those campaigns and uh, I guess the impact you think data will continue to have in the future. Yeah, so uh, the way to think of data science on a campaign is we're kind of a central service provider or like a central consultant to the rest of the campaign. We don't exist for our own purposes. We just exist to basically help other uh, components of the campaign make good data-driven decisions. Um, the, the most important thing we do are those predictions about individuals. So we take a voter file, we get consumer data, we conduct a large poll, and we build predictions about every single voting individual. And those predictions basically say like, you know, are you a GOP primary voter? How, how likely are you to be a GOP primary voter? How likely are you to be a swing voter? How likely are you to be someone with whom education really resonates, right? And those predictions then decide who we talk to, how we talk to them, and what we say to them. So, you know, because of our predictions, we can say, here is a group of 80,000 swing voters in state X, and we are going to uh, deliver a digital message to them because we believe they're very likely to be online. 
And that message should be about tax policy because they're especially concerned about tax policy. And then that's up to the digital staff to go execute, right? We give it to them. They decide the best way to place the ad, the, how much money should go behind it, what's the, the frequency that people should see the ad. Um, but the, the fundamental decision about who they're targeting is made by us. But we'll do that for digital. We'll work with finance. We'll work with field. We'll work with all the different parts of the campaign to just make sure that data is infused in their, in their decision making. So a lot of what we do is just collecting as much data as we can, reformatting it, tidying it up, and then visualizing it, putting it into dashboards for the campaign to use. And then just at the senior strategy table, being the voice of data, the voice of you know the voters and representing that interest when we're having strategic and tactical conversations. So the 2016 primary mm-hmm. uh, was historically uh, messy. Yeah. <laughs> what did that look like uh, on your end from your position? Yeah, in the 2016 primary was tough. Um, when we make predictions, uh, one of the easier predictions to make is distinguishing Republicans from Democrats. It's like separating people who like vanilla who, from people who like chocolate. Like it's not that hard to do. Now there's some nuance to it, but like it's fairly straightforward. When you're trying to separate uh, people in a primary, it's very different. It's separating people who like French vanilla from people who <laughs> like vanilla bean, you know? Sure. And that's not easy. That's not very predictable, right? And when things aren't predictable, you have to find other things that are predictable that, that can help you get some separation that proxies that distinction, right? And so one of the things we really struggled with was that when we would build a Jeb model, there was really no meaningful difference between a Jeb supporter and a Rubio supporter. There wasn't anything especially distinctive about them. And that's not helpful, right? Um, what we did finally settle upon was um, building two big models to basically separate the field between um, what we called establishment and insurgents. The establishments were your Jebs and your Rubios and your Kasichs, right? And, and the insurgents were your Cruz and Trumps. Um, and that we could separate the Republican primary electorate pretty well. And then we would have other things like how undecided are you? What's your favorability? What's your likelihood to consider voting for Jeb versus consider voting for Rubio? Um, you know, those things we could start to get some distinctions, but we had to be creative about exactly what we were predicting. So uh, I think that's a really interesting uh, analysis about having to separate the insurgent from the, you know, the more establishment candidate. And I think I've seen that uh, those kind of two lanes being occupied, you know, throughout GOP and uh, the Democratic Party's history. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious about looking at 2016 is the impact Trump as the insurgent played, because I feel you know, going into the game of his campaign, no one looked at him as viable. Right. People thought he was a joke. And I'm curious, you know, what did the data say about Trump? And, yeah. uh, you know, how do you interact with an insurgent candidate that, you know, was able to take the world by storm like no other insurgent or like, you know, Newt Gingrich types have ever done before? Right. Yeah. Trump was a unique challenge. And, um, and you know, the way we adapted to it was interesting. <laughs> um, it's actually one of the stories I love to tell about the campaign because – one of our tasks, as I said, was to basically collect data and dashboard it so that we had good information. And one of the things that we tracked was kind of digital presence for these candidates. And so we did things like track Google search interest or track Wikipedia visits to the different candidates' pages. And in our dashboards, uh, Trump's numbers were so massive that they completely threw off the axes on the dashboard. So Trump 
you know, if you can imagine a line chart, you know, um, with multiple lines, each representing a candidate search interest over time, there would be one chart way up top. And then there would be like eight other charts all tangled up spaghetti like down <laughs> way at the bottom, which were all the other candidates. And so because of that, those charts weren't very helpful, like from a visual analysis perspective, like you couldn't see how Jeb was doing compared to who we considered to be our main rivals, you know. And so we actually built into our dashboards a button where you could remove Trump from the analysis. And so we and we did that for two reasons. Number one was because he was throwing off the charts so much because it was such extreme behavior. But number two, we didn't take him seriously. We didn't think he was a viable candidate. Now, it got to a point where obviously it was hard to avoid taking him seriously and that all changed. But it speaks to, you know, how we dealt with him initially. But at the beginning, despite, you know, the record level of ticks, we still kind of, you know, diverged from the data being like, you know, this is a temporary blip. And yeah, it was more we thought of him as just a unique type of candidate in that, you know, nobody else was a celebrity who had their own reality television show, (laughs) you know, had spent a decade on the front page of the New York Post. Um, So we just considered him to be a completely different animal and, again, didn't really think he was a viable candidate. And so we looked at that as anomalous, as anomalous behavior. And so we filtered it out. After all of that in the primary, you went through all of your uh, predictions, modeling. What does the week after your candidate loses (laughs) look like? Uh, It's not a very good week, I'll tell you that much. Uh, But no, uh, most campaigns um, that have the means that uh, that week after, uh, uh, especially if you lose, but also typically if you win, you do what's called a postmortem. And that postmortem uh, involves a couple data sources. Number one, um, uh, sometimes the campaign will do a survey on election night. Um, and so, I, you know, the Romney campaign, we did a survey on election night and we had that data come back the next day. And we use that in conjunction with the exit polls to basically start understanding the narrative of the can- of, of election day. Um, uh, but then we also, as soon as we can, um, use actual voting data. Now that usually doesn't start showing up until December or so, depending upon the state. Um, but that can be a part of it. But so a lot of that week is just spent, um, you know, wondering what happened, who turned out to vote. It's the same thing that you see really happening on, um, you know, cable news channels in those first few days afterwards. Everybody's trying to figure out what the narrative is. We always hear the people who won have an election night party. Do you guys still party? Well, there's, there is a party that <laughs> at 7 p.m., you know, and then depending upon how early it's called, that party can get, you know, pretty depressing. Um, but, but yeah, yeah there's, there's usually some form of party. It's just a matter of the tone. <laughs> I feel Fair that. Point. Fair point. Um, could you walk us through, I guess, what the postmortem narrative was from the campaigns you worked on? I'm curious. Um, I guess more so for Romney because that was a, a general. But, you know, if there was something for Jeb, what, were, what was the takeaways that you all made about those? respective campaigns after election night? Oh, man, that's a good question. You're asking me to think back. Uh, you know, I, I think for, for Jeb, a lot of it was obviously just focused around Trump. And the big question was, you know, how soon should people have turned on him and gone negative on him? Because there was a thought that it was like, you know, wrestling with a pig. <laughs> you get dirty and the pig loves it, right? Um, uh, but there was a certain point, I think around, you know, December or so, where you know, we, uh, we really, Jeb, made a decision to engage more with him. And I think that helped him, um, but the question was, you know, did we do that at the right time? Should we have done it earlier? Um, and so we were focused on stuff like that. Um, for Romney, it was a question of basically looking at turnout and how did turnout vary and what did it mean and, you know, where did we get the turnout we expected and where did we not get the turnout we expected? 
and also issue voting. You know, how did we capture those those people for whom the economy was important? Um, you know, versus those who thought it wasn't. Um, there were a lot of other components to it, but as there always are, and um, you know, it's uh, it's it's always hard to kind of settle on a narrative that early. There's a lot more data that needs to come out, um, and the best work is done in the months afterwards when there's. So you worked for Romney and Jeb Bush, mm -hmm. and in recent election cycles, uh, we've seen a lot of push towards, uh, like you were saying earlier, the insurgent type candidates. Right. Do you think there's a path forward, a future in the Republican Party for more establishment candidates? Do you think that still is there? Um, I, I sure hope so. I would think that there will be. Um, I, I think this election will be an interesting one because um, you know, I think we have an instance where we had a lot of insurgent candidates win primaries, and they're now up in the general. And so we're going to have to see how they do in the general. You know, I think fundamentally the thing I, you know, that I feel like parties should keep in mind is that the reason parties exist, their whole job is to nominate uh, a person who has the best chance of winning a general election. And I think that, you know, watching the Republican Party, I think, nominate candidates who traditionally would not be considered to be the strongest to win the general election, you know, it, it's an interesting strategy, and I think we're going to see how that pays off in terms of turnout um, this cycle. Uh, so, you know, TBD. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm curious, you know, continuing on this kind of establishment insurgency conversation, um, did your postmortem of the Romney campaign in any ways predict the rise of Trump or the rise of a Trump-like candidate to take the GOP in 2016? Um, I don't know that it, it, I don't think it actually predicted that, but you know, there was a, there was a, a very formal postmortem also done by the Republican National Committee afterwards. And in that, they made a number of recommendations, especially in regard to reaching out to minority groups like Hispanics, um, that, uh, were absolutely not followed. <laughs> and so uh, we, you know, uh, certainly if you were looking at that year after the 2012 uh, election, there, there wasn't an indication at the kind of party level uh, that this would be the path we would go down. So then uh, segueing that conversation into something more recent, uh, not recent, to come, uh, the 2022 midterms. As a, as a data person, we're curious what your analysis is there and if you can give us any insight onto what your uh, Senate map might look like. Right. So this is where I, I tell you that um, one, one important thing to keep in mind, I will, I will give you my Senate map. <laughs> I will give you my Senate map. But this is my, my warning to you in general is that actually a data scientist on a campaign, only probably less than 5% of our job is actually predicting election day outcomes. Most of what we're focused on is informing the strategy and the tactics that go on day to day and week to week in a campaign. And so we spend a lot of time making predictions about individuals and where they are at a particular point in time. And then how can we communicate with them in such a way that we actually ultimately win? Now, do we do prediction on election day? Yeah, we do. A lot of the time we're doing it based off of those individual predictions. And it's actually a form um, of analysis that's much more robust than what we see in the media. In the media, when you look at sites like 538, they're dealing with poll aggregation. They're taking poll inputs and they're using those in their models to basically come out with, come up with outcomes and simulations. What we can do is we have individual level predictions. So you know, for, for one person, we'll have like a 0.85 you know, likelihood that they're gonna vote and a 0.62 probability that they're gonna vote Republican. And what we can do is we can do actually, you know, we can simulate weighted coin flips of those. 
you know, say, let's flip a coin with a 0.82 probability that they vote. Did they vote? Okay, if they voted, then let's flip a coin with a 0.62 probability that they voted Republican. And we can actually cume that up and do these sort of uh, simulations and just look at the outcomes. So it's not, it's, it's not completely dissimilar from what we get at some of these uh, polling sites, but it's at a much finer level of detail. Um, so anyway, all that being said, um, you know, look, I, I hate to go against the wisdom of crowds here where you basically have a whole bunch of forecasters right now saying that, you know, basically the Senate is dead even and that the House is going to be a Republican flip, right? We'll get a Republican flip. Um, that sure seems to me what it looks like right now. I, you know, wouldn't be surprised if we end up at 50-50 in the Senate again, just based on looking at individual races, but also just looking at the probabilities that are on sites like 538. I do think, you know, in the House... What you need to think about in the House, and I'm sure this will get lost in, in, in the narrative, but we need to remember that like the baseline assumption is that Democrats will lose something like 40 seats. If you just take like baseline assumptions from standard models that have been in the political science literature for, for um, you know, in-party midterm elections, like when you have the presidency, what happens to that party in a House midterm mm -hmm. election is that they lose a lot of seats especially when you layer in presidential approval where more people disapprove of Biden right now than approve of him. We're looking at like a 40-seat you know, turnover in the House. And so I think we need to remember, like, what does it look like you know, if, if, if Democrats only lose 20 seats? That's like amazing for them, right? And so we need to keep that in mind when we, when we make those predictions. But in terms of the Senate, I think 50-50 is our most likely um, outcome right now. Like, where do I get that from? That's the big question. <laughs> like, so if we look at the most competitive races, I think I think there are basically some of this is just gut and my own experience. I think there are two races where we get two opposite flips, which basically keep us at, at parity in 50-50. I think in Pennsylvania, I actually think that Fetterman has the uh, the best chance of pulling this out, just based on what I'm seeing in the race. Um, and then the other one is. Um, the other flip is Nevada, which is uh, Laxalt. Laxalt seems like he could do this, but now I think there are some people who could who would tell me differently. You know, if Zochi was here, I think she'd tell you that like Nevada always comes back to the Dems, and <laughs> you know the unions got out, got out to do what they needed to do. They could. That one is probably the one I'm 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 like feel, you know, where I I'm most likely to go in the opposite. I could be convinced to go the opposite direction. But those two flips kind of cancel each other out. And the rest I have is holds, you know? Um, I think in Georgia, I think Warnock, you know, uh, um, beats out Walker there. Um, you know, why? Uh, I mean, Walker is not a great candidate, right? He's, he's run into a host of problems. But I also think, you know, the Georgia turnout machine, I think, can, uh, can really motivate, um, you know, low turnout Dems there. So, yeah, you know, all the other ones I, I think I have as holds. Um, so J.D. Vance in Ohio. I do have J.D. Vance in Ohio. That one w was one where, like, <laughs> you know, it, I think Vance will ultimately pull it off, but, like, it, it doesn't feel like he should <laughs> because uh, the, the campaigning there just seems, um, seems to be tough and difficult. But, um, yeah, well, you know, I think he pulls it off. And as one of our podcasts, resident North Carolinians, I have to ask, you think uh, Beasley Bud? Well, yeah, I think it's going it stays Bud. with Bud. Or, well, I think it stays in the Republican family, and I think Bud pulls that out. Like, 
North Carolina at the end of the day, I think it's just like has they're they're too red, you know, uh, for that to go the other way. I think for sure. In the last few weeks, we went from a few weeks ago the five thirty eight deluxe right. forecast was showing like a seventy thirty percent chance of Democrats pulling out the Senate, yeah. and in recent weeks, it's it's tightened to a dead heat. Yeah. Do you think that's just mean reversion in the polling? Or do you think something has changed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think it's a lot of things. You know, I ultimately go to many, many expla- explanations than just one. I think some of it is mean reversion. I think some of it is people paying more attention than just racist tightening before election days. That's kind of natural. Um, but also, like, the economic data has not been great. Like, uh, the inflation numbers, I think, are, are just really, really bad. And gas prices are creeping back up again. They're not as bad as they were. But you had, you know, a few weeks ago, you had a lot of those numbers kind of looking very good for the Dems, um, whereas now it's just, it, it's more of a mixed bag. You have more people talking, more companies planning as though we are in a recession, um, and that's really hard. There are some good economic numbers out there. You know, we're, I, I think we're in very uncharted territory when it comes to the economic statistics that we're looking at right now, and that we're all over the place. Um, and so, you know, there's still two weeks left. Uh, but, you know, voting's already happening in a lot of these places. So you got to keep that in mind. That's one thing that's actually one of the more, I think, undercovered changes in covering elections, which is the fact that you now have people, uh, a larger and larger mass of people voting well ahead of election day. Yeah, and I think those are conversations we definitely are going to continue in our next episode with you, which we uh, unpack. Yeah, I wouldn't put it like analysis. that. It's a, it's a post-mortem analysis. <laughs> But before we wrap it up today, we have a tradition of having a lightning round at the end of our interview. We'll ask you a question, we'll alternate here, and just give us the first answer that comes to your mind. Nothing too crazy. Okay. Um, so we'll start off with an easy one. You're a former Hoya. What's your favorite Georgetown tradition? Uh, chicken madness. Uh, I'm with you. I'm a hot chick person, but... <laughs> definitely gone to wise millers a few times in the last week you know i haven't been in so long i feel like chicken madness is something only like my 20 something body could handle <laughs> but, but I, I should go get one but. it's worth it <laughs> yeah. number two yes 2024 who's the republican nominee it's trump okay yeah trump fair <laughs> i'm betting on DeSantis, but so we'll, we'll do another post-mortem then <laughs> uh, favorite moment on a campaign Favorite moment on campaign was um, actually while I was working for Jeb, uh, one of his uh, top advisors, Sally Bradshaw, came around and said, hey, we need to get you out into the the field, basically. I'd been at the office. The data guys are usually, you know, in the basement, just like in front of our computers, not doing much. And she arranged for me to spend a few days traveling around New Hampshire with Jeb. And um, that was a really important moment because you really get to see the real stakes of it and you get to see the real stories and the real... Um, consequences behind what this person is doing. We went to a women's shelter um, for women who have been suffering from domestic abuse, and Jeb led a roundtable there. And that was just a really big moment because it's so easy for me to get wrapped up in kind of the data and the numbers and just like look at columns and rows and think that that's the election. But at the end of the day, we're humans. We're electing people to lead us, and there are a lot of big consequences to it. And so for our next question, following up on Jeb, I'm sure you've seen the memes about Jeb. <laughs> what are your thoughts on him? I mean, more Jeb is good Jeb. So, like, I'll, you know, any memes that we can get, I'm for. 
<laughs> has Jeb seen the Jeb memes? What that, that's Jeb the big think? question. What does he think of Please I, Clap? I, I get the impression he has. I believe he has. I think he's very aware of that stuff. It's funny, actually, today in class, um, one of my students randomly uh, raised my hand and said, whose idea was the exclamation point? <laughs> and I feel like somebody else asked me that just recently, but, but that is leftover from his gubernatorial campaign, and that was the product of one of his consultants is Mike Murphy, and I believe that that was his idea. It wouldn't be the same without the exclamation point. It's pure point. genius. I can't spell yeah. Jeb without the exclamation point. I, you got to do it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the pod with us today, uh, this week, and we're excited to have you back after the midterms. So till then, thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Fly on the Wall. You can find us on social media by searching at Fly on the Wall Pod. Inquiries may be sent to our email address, flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe to Fly on the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. The Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, Managing Director of the Pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon.